Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be speaking about how the war in Ukraine is pushing newsrooms to innovate and bring about new forms of storytelling to explain this conflict. For the past six months, the world has witnessed shocking atrocities in Ukraine, alongside mass migration coupled with rising inflation and an energy crisis. But as the war continues, we're beginning to see low engagement among audiences for this type of coverage. So how can journalists leverage this moment to spur innovation in their storytelling and to fight war fatigue among audiences and boost engagement? To explore this, we sat down with Gianluca Mezzafiore, an investigative producer at CNN, and Sam Joyner, the Financial Times' visual stories editor. This conversation took place on the 21st of June, 2022, as part of an event hosted by the European Journalism Center and the Sigma Awards. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Jean-Luca Mezzafiore and Sam Joyner. Jean-Luca, I'm going to start with you. Um, CNN has long had a foothold in war reporting, uh, with reporters embedded with the military or out on their own in the field finding stories. You know, Christian Amanpour, Clarissa Ward, the list goes on. How does that perspective and strong track record of conflict reporting sort of impact the stories that you deliver digitally and what, what you're focusing on as an investigator, investigative journalist? Hi. Um, thank you, Tara, for the question. So, uh, as you said, uh, CNN has a long track record of, you know, war reporting. And um, we, as sort of digital uh, investigators, stand on the shoulder of giants, although the uh, great war reporting has, has been done until now by uh, CNN reporters that um, have been covering wars uh, for decades. Um, I think um, uh, the, Uc- the Russia-Ukrainian war um, marked up uh, shift in the, the war coverage, and um, and this has been noted by a lot of experts and uh, by uh, internally at CNN as well. Um, and uh, with that, I mean that um, obviously CNN mission is to go there. It's our motto. Uh, it's in our uh, DNA. And um, the Ukraine war is no exception. We had um, a lot of teams there on the ground since the beginning of the war, even before the start of the war. And um, and um, there was a team even in, in Russia, the border with Ukraine, uh, when the rockets were being fired on the February 24th, for example. But um, the, this, with this war, the, uh, the magnitude of... Uh, videos uh, and the images available on open source is uh, absolutely like uh, never seen before. Uh, there's no comparison to Syria, for example. Uh, a lot of people uh, rightly so asked why, you know, did we, uh, we've seen that so much coverage and so much open source coverage of the war in Ukraine and, uh, and as opposed to, you know, what happened with Syria. But the reality is um, we, we haven't seen that many videos before uh, during a war. And um, I'm talking of, you know, several platforms uh, altogether, you know, where we've seen 
particularly before the war started, um, a lot of TikTok videos, for example, of uh, Russia massing troops uh, at the border with Ukraine or in Belarus. And um, our job as um, sort of open source uh, investigators started way before the war uh, in uh, you know trying to sort of geolocate and verify uh, those videos to show the movement of troops and uh, to um, sort of um, also show that that, that uh, Russia was being serious in in this and um, even the, like doing other efforts like for example uh, debunking. Um, false flag operations that Russia was using, you know, as an excuse to start a war. You know, there were the, the, those videos of sabotage or missiles being fired in, a, in, a, in the separatist republics. Um, and um, and when, after the war started, um, we as a sort of op- the open source uh, in- investigations team uh, worked like nonstop, like 24-7, to basically uh, geolocate and verify those videos, not only uh, for our coverage, but also uh, crucially for our correspondence on the ground. So we had um, a lot of people who were in different uh, cities of Ukraine when when the war started, uh, several correspondents, and uh, uh, the sort of the kind of intelligence that we were getting from open source uh, was um, inimaginable in other wars. And um, that's um, that, like really, really marked a sh- big shift in the, the way we as CNN covered this war um, before before Ukraine. Um, uh, open source and uh, sort of the social, social discovery work was, um, you know, sort of uh, aside uh, to the, the the key focus of our coverage. While with Ukraine, it became the center and fold of of every story we, we, we've been doing since then. I mean, your team has done incredible work um, using um, geolocalization techniques to, to verify information, as well as satellite imagery and graphics um, to help um, tell stories visually. Uh, could you talk us through an example of uh, innovative data storytelling um, on the Russia-Ukraine war that you've done? Um, yeah. how it came about and uh, the sort of challenges that um, you faced while um, making it. Yeah, sure. Um, very often the starting point is just uh, our uh, sort of daily uh, open source uh, work. So uh, at the very beginning of the war, the first uh, uh, two days, 20, uh, February 24th and tw- February 25th, we were seeing like a lot of rockets uh, attacks in Kharkiv, in residential areas of Kharkiv, and that uh, unfortunately went has been going on since then, pretty much. Um, we 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 started uh, sort of verifying and geolocating those videos, um, and um, we we sort of were wondering uh, after. Uh, pinpointing the location of these videos on, on Google Earth, we were sort of seeing a pattern uh, that um, kind of appeared to show sort of a line. And um, we we were getting a lot of videos from the ground showing these uh, rockets uh, stuck on the pavement, for example, and the weapons ap- experts were, were pointing on the fact that these were merch rockets. And, um, and uh, more importantly, uh, a lot of these attacks uh, appear to show that uh, cluster munition bombings, which are uh, not only 
like incredibly lethal and uh, uh, but also have serious consequences for the future because uh, um, you know as, as it happened in uh, in uh, Lebanon for example uh, people are still discovering these submunitions uh, years later and uh, they could explode and causing incredible consequences and um, and so after sort of geolocating these incidents we sort of went back and asked the question uh, who was launching these attacks why were they targeting uh, residential areas in Kharkiv, uh, what was the strategy behind it? Was there a particular unit in the Russian army that was doing that? Um, this is like security uh, footage, uh, CCTV footage showing people fleeing from a park while this uh, cluster submunition explode all around them. Uh, and it's, it, 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 these videos were you know, particularly appalling. So what we did in collaboration with the uh, uh, Center for Information Resilience, um, after identifying the location impacted by the smart rocks and identifying the smart rocks themselves, and then there was another, there were other instances of uh, submunitions uh, being uncovered in the areas. Um, we sort of tried to draw uh, a trajectory um, from the um, sort of point of attacks. Um, uh, and um, was obviously based on the range, uh, known range area of the Smirch rockets, which is 70, 90 miles. And um, based on that, we sort of, and on the direction of the rockets, we drew a line going all the way up, which converged in an area south of Belgorod, Russia. So it was actually showing that the attacks were, uh, were, were starting from Russia. So the, the Russian units didn't need to be he didn't even need to be in Ukraine to launch these attacks. Um, and then from that, we sort of sent a team on the ground um, that um, went, that visited the same location, spoke to eyewitnesses. So this, is, this speaks again to the sort of combining the um, open source uh, digital investigation job to uh, traditional on the ground reporting that CNN is renowned for. And then... Uh, afterwards, uh, we managed to make a connection between this unit that was launching these attacks and um, the, the, the general that uh, signed off on, on these um, on the on these cluster munition uh, smirch attacks. Uh, and the same general uh, used the same strategy in uh, in uh, Aleppo, Syria. Mm -hmm. So you know it kind of speaks to the to the same strategy. Uh, horrible strategy of targeting civilian infrastructure with the idea of sort of demoralizing the population and uh, flattening cities that we've seen uh, uh, in Syria, in Aleppo, Syria, and, uh, and, um, and here in Ukraine. And so to come back to this uh, incredible graphic where you managed to cross-reference information here um, on the rockets, um, do you have specific tools at hand to make this happen? To, to <laughs> to track the trajectory of something or to just take a map and try to draw something it was all made on on google earth actually uh it was uh, uh it was uh, so we were we have like a google earth with all the sort of location pinpointed and then uh, with the center information resilience we sort of uh managed to like draw a line uh, just uh, just on Google Earth, showing uh, with just exposing the the satellite image where the uh, attacks was launched. So yeah, not nothing too fancy. And um, Sam, I wonder, you know, coming from the Financial Times, you've worked on several rich, immersive pieces 
um, looking at this conflict. Could you just show us some examples that sort of best depict, you know, your coverage and innovation, you know, when focusing on this war? Yeah, of course. I think I'd start by saying that the the rolling nature of the conflict just doesn't immediately lend itself to the type of visual journalism that we want to produce. We kind of, we spend a, a minimum of a kind of week to two weeks turning things around and often it can be significantly longer than that. So my initial challenge was to work out how we were going to contribute to the Financial Times coverage of it because the the wider visual and data team instantly goes to work. They kind of, we've got somebody like Steve Bernard who, who uh, springs up a load of maps and we kind of base our reporting on those immediate day-to-day sort of ways of telling a war and, and kind of visually communicating what's happening. And my challenge was to think about how we could kind of tap into it and, and kind of tell a bigger story within the rolling conflict. Um, and initially that was quite difficult. And then I think the longer the, the war kind of went on, I started listening to people talk about this second phase and the fact that Putin's initial plan, uh, initial plan had failed. And that kind of gave us an opportunity to go, right, okay, so let's just assess what we called phase one of the war. And I think it was, we had to do it very quickly at that point. Um, we set ourselves a challenge of telling the story of part one of the war um, in two weeks from, from scratch. So this was the kind of the story we wanted to tell, how Russia's mistakes in Ukrainian resistance had altered Putin's war. And, and we did this about a month or three weeks into the conflict when it became clear that that um the war kind of stalled and, and Putin's approach and, and attempt to take Kiev in that lightning assault had, had stalled. Um, and we kind of went through from there and we based the whole thing on a map. Um, and we kind of, I think still at this point, readers kind of understanding of Ukraine as a nation in terms of where things were, like their geographic sort of understanding of it wasn't great and, and was kind of developing as the, as the conflict unfolded. So we wanted to kind of base this on top of Ukraine and, and show you from there what, what this looked like. So, we kind of take readers in, we show the territorial gains made by the Russians, we show that they were targeting these densely populated areas, and then we kind of whiz you in and, and take you around the country to show you the key urban areas started that they were targeting at the beginning. And then we did a lot of the kind of OSINT work that you've been hearing about today. So we kind of worked out where these key locations were, and we found the footage that best supported the argument that we, or the, 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 the narrative that we were taking from this first part of the war, which was that Ukrainian resistance and uh, Russia's mistakes had had completely changed the course of the war, and it wasn't the war that many thought would unfold. And that involved interviews with uh, military, military analysts and, and former four-star NATO generals, as well as people on the ground to kind of understand what was happening. This video here is soldiers, Russian soldiers marching back out of Sumy after, uh, after abandoning their equipment on the way back to Russia. And it involved doing other things. I'll, I'll come to it shortly, but we also managed to geolocate uh, I think it's the first time this has been done, but the 64-kilometer convoy that snaked its way out from Kiev that completely snarled up, and that kind of became a real symbolism of the hubris that that, that kind of had blighted Putin's approach to this war, and, and the fact that they believed that they could take Kiev in in a matter of days. Um, we talked about the Ukrainians' approach, the way that they'd kind of been preparing for this. We spoke to some really interesting people that said that right back to the annexation of Crimea. Ukraine had been preparing for a full invasion. They hadn't been, I think outside of Ukraine, people have thought that they would be thinking about how they counted what was happening in the Donbass. But actually, we spoke to people who were there training the Ukrainian military and said, US, uh, military, US experts, basically, and, and kind of generals saying, this is what they've been preparing for. The tactics that we're seeing now have been in, 
in place for a long time. Um, and, and that's the kind of key thing that we try to do as a team is, is kind of explain. Um, we take a big topic like the war in Ukraine, find an angle, and then go after it as quickly as we can to kind of explain what's happening. Another thing we did, which was quite nice, was visualize some of the key weapon ranges. So the N-laws and javelins have played a huge role in this war. But what does 800 meters actually look like when we're talking about that on the ground? Like, it, it's quite hard to understand that contextually. And then what does four kilometers look like? And we kind of used these visual techniques to kind of show readers stuff that they've been reading about, but potentially hadn't seen and how this was playing out within the war. Um, so that's one story that we told, which I think was quite a nice example. And this story, I think this story is important because it's something that we started to look at. And I think the Financial Times have done well at reporting on is the second order impact of the conflict. So the ramifications of a war on this scale are enormous. And those sort of narratives started to kind of be teased out and, and I think of increasing significance and telling those stories became vital. Um, the kind of key one that well, we've been reporting on or looking at is, is the implications for the global food security. Um, the, the wars had a major impact on that. And I didn't know that Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe in the way that it was. And, and wars have a way of revealing these kind of key, key sort of infrastructure or, or kind of ways that the world are interconnected. And I think that you don't really realize that until something like this unfolds. Um, often these kind of supply chain routes just work quite seamlessly. And I think both COVID and the war in Ukraine have exposed how physically connected we really are. So we wanted to dive into the, the food crisis and tell the story of basically how Russia was systematically targeting Ukrainian food supplies, but also what the wider ramifications were for the rest of the world in terms of Ukraine struggling to farm, in terms of Ukraine struggling to distribute, um, and then what those impacts would be. So this one, we actually really wanted to do some reporting on the ground. We had somebody in Kyiv um, who went and spoke to farmers directly affected, and we sent a photographer with with uh, John Reed, who was that reporter. And, and we kind of showed really what, what was going on there. And I think it it really helps when you combine war photography and frontline reporting in this data-driven analysis. It kind of brings to life these stories in a way that hits home that what we're telling you is, is, is kind of, it kind of cuts through any, any kind of like disinformation and, and that kind of feeling that what you're saying might not be accurate. And there is so much disinformation on a conflict like this. It really helps. Um, thank you very much for sharing those, um, those examples. And um, the next, um, a question that we have for you is um, actually for both of you, um, Sam and Gianluca, uh, a bit of a broad question, I'm afraid. Um, that is, how on earth do you innovate while covering such sensitive topics, such as war and conflicts? Like, does um, the subject make it tougher to try new things? Or in the contrary, um, um, the topic makes you want to innovate and do new things? Yeah, I mean, as, as Sam rightly said, uh, the like, sort of rolling nature of, of the conflict actually made, made it quite hard, you know, to try and innovate because um, we, uh, like, I, I was used to work on long-term projects. Like last year, um, we, we, we published a lot of investigations on Ethiopia and the Tigray conflict, and we were working like a one month, sometimes even two months long investigation with you no know, development deployment on the ground and uh, um like uh, high production and uh by by nature like with the ukraine war you sort of the, the the time frame is like compressed and the one example i, I can actually give you 
the story we published on the Maripol uh, maternity hospital attack. Uh, so for this story, we sort of used a 3D model of the area of the hospital, and we worked with um, um, a 3D visual editor who was a, a forensic architecture. And uh, we sort of uh, the, the 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 time frame for this uh, for this investigation was one week. So we worked uh, for like flat out day and night um, to sort of um, show um, not only the that the attack happened on a civilian infrastructure uh, and that the that they was operating at the moment. I like what. The Russian was saying, but what we were trying to show was also a sort of time frame of the, the disinformation on the Russian side uh, and the sort of uh, target campaign to um, Mariana, the, the the pregnant woman uh, that the the Russian uh, Russian embassies um, sort of launched against her. Um, there is sort of a timeline um, of the. Um, of of the of the hospital uh the way it was operating uh before uh the attack and um you know several pictures and this is uh, what i was talking about uh, sort of showing the um, sort of smear and disinformation campaign uh, on the russian side before the um, the attack was launched on the on the hospital so there was no doubt it was when uh, it was an airstrike and that it was with a 500 kilo uh, explosive bomb. So, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's challenging because obviously we had, we had to sort of work uh, um, uh, flat out for, for a week and uh, the 3D modeler probably hates us right now because yeah, to, uh, we, we, you know, to kind of uh, answer our, our incredible requests. And there was also a TV package associated with it um but um i think it's a uh, it's a quite a quite a good example of what you can achieve in such a sort of compressed time frame cool thank you very much Arlika. and so sam um what's your view on this Jean-Luc's answer is spot on that uh it's trying to apply visual storytelling techniques to what is the really sort of live and current story and i think for us as a visual storytelling team as a new team we've kind of been in existence for less than a year it was a great opportunity to apply those things to what is the biggest story of the moment and i think often visual storytelling teams are great at telling kind of the story you're not expecting to read but when there's something of this magnitude you're you're suddenly thrust into the limelight and you're able to use visuals to tell stories in ways that that are the biggest stories and and this the, the story i just showed you on russia's mistakes uh, was one of the best read pieces we've published as a as an organization so far this year. Um, another sort of much simpler sort of innovation which we introduced, which was quite nice, was the hide sensitive content toggle. So I don't know if you can see down here, we've got this little toggle and it's as simple as that. Um, and it replaced all of the videos with still images. So we're quite conscious that some readers would find these images distressing. And as you scroll through a story, you don't know what you're gonna see. Um, and it was something that we got a lot of really good feedback on. Um, it was a late decision. We thought, why don't we introduce this and see how it works? Um, and it's something we're using again for another story. And I think it's a good example of uh, kind of innovating in a small way that can have a big impact on readers. Um, and then another thing I wanted to show you just very quickly, this is something we're publishing. Uh, we haven't published yet. So this is very much a sneak peek uh, of something that we're working on. So. This is a story we're working on where we've we managed to fly a drone uh, 
in, I won't even tell you the town, if you work it out. Jenica will know, because he'll, uh, he'll be able to <laughs> get it. But for everybody else, I'm going to keep it secret, because we're going to publish this at some point soon. But we managed to fly uh, a drone through one of the cities, um, or one of the towns. And trying to do something like that within a war zone is quite complex, and those challenges and, and the opportunity to innovate in a, in a live, active area. This is quite a nice video as well, which basically takes you right inside a building that we want to talk about within the story. And these, these figures are untouched. This is a cultural center and it kind of takes you, this kind of immersive storytelling is something that you can do with something that feels very live to help take readers into a conflict. And I think this is a nice opportunity to, to situate readers and really show them it and, and kind of bring something to life for them where they, they might be tired of it, of the report, more reporting, but they won't be tired of seeing things like this. And I think that's quite a nice way of making things feel fresh and feel new. I feel like you guys kind of answered the question, the next question I was gonna ask, which was like, what kind of new innovative storytelling and technology are you using? Um, it sounds like there's 3D modeling, uh, 3D modelers you're working with, and then also um, using drones. Um, I wonder what other visuals aids you're using or what other technology you're trying to bring in to sort of make humanize the story and deal with this apathy that maybe we're seeing? I would say one thing that is um, at least I think is unprecedented uh, on the Ukraine war is the use of sort of satellite imagery um, to tell a story. And uh, the and, and it's, I think it's a, uh, it's really telling that a lot of these satellite companies are now working uh, together with like journalists, um, you know, to sort of task uh, the satellites almost on a daily basis um, uh, to sort of deliver these incredible images. And one one example I think that that is you know, a great example in itself, and it's uh, te very telling is the um, sort of the, the satellite imagery of the Maripol theater with the word child. Um, I think that that kind of was impressed in everyone's memory because it's uh, um, such a like, compelling image and it, it, it tells a story by itself. And then AP did that amazing uh, visual investigation of the uh, Maripol theater, the way they combined uh, eyewitness testimonies, uh, the map of, of the theater, uh, satellite imagery, and the drone videos. Like, this is one of the best examples I've seen of um, like sort of innovating uh, the, the storytelling of the war and uh, making, even also making it more um, accessible to everyone because everyone is, you know, can see those images and, uh, and, uh, and relate to it, relate to the, how, you know, how horrible this attack was. Yeah, I think that's a. I think satellite imagery has played a huge role. Um, I also think that the the role that citizen journalism has played in terms of making information publicly available is enormous. I don't know if we've seen yeah. something explode in that way. Like from people like Rob Lee, who's a, a war studies student at King's University, yeah. has, has exploded because he's taking content from Telegram or TikTok and repurposing it basically to a, a sort of more mainstream audience and. The, the amount of content that is being filmed by the public within Ukraine, everybody's kind of documenting yeah. these crimes and journalists are then repackaging, repurposing them, but we're not filming them. I mean, it's it's okay. not on the ground and, and the rise of that sort of citizen journalism is, has been transformative for the stories that we can tell, but also for the, the way that 
this war has been kind of reported on and covered. But I also think there's there is a kind of responsibility with that because the, the what we see coming out of Ukraine isn't necessarily the exact narrative. And and I think we, I know you touched Marianne earlier on like the role of the criminal courts in in kind of recover, reporting what happened in Ukraine and the way properly gathering this evidence and going through it will be really vital. But it feels like in part the, the public have been able to form an opinion much earlier than they have in say the Rwanda conflict where this stuff doesn't come to light in such a visual and visceral way. And it becomes very different that we can kind of literally experience this stuff uh, through video format. And I think that's important that we, we're seeing and, and experiencing it much more than we would have in previously when, when this content wasn't so available. Fascinating. Um, and so, uh, because the goal of this session um, is also to help people um, learn a bit from your experience, um, would it be possible for us to have a chat about uh, the best practices? What are the kind of tips or, or best practices you may have uh, within your team that you use on a daily basis to make sure that um, your teams both deliver the information and leave some room for innovative formats? Yeah, I think uh, when you're, you know, when you're in a situation of like breaking news with, with, with the Ukraine war, particularly the first week, the first few days, and uh, it's incredibly hectic and you have, as, as Sam said, like this amount of uh, information and videos, uh, the temptation is like to cut corners and, uh, you know, even even in terms, I'm talking about geolocation and uh, uh, reverse image search and uh, that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm pretty uh, like rigorous about that uh, with our team. Like this is like the basics of everything we do uh, as a sort of OSINT and and um, and uh, uh, visual investigation team is like we need to verify the facts mm -hmm. and make sure uh, that this video is located where it says it is. Uh, the amount of uh, misinformation uh, on this war is absolutely staggering like uh, nothing i've ever seen before from you know from both sides obviously um with the, with the due differences but um there was um you know there was a lot of claims and a lot of uh, propaganda uh, on both the russian and the ukrainian side uh, and um and i think like uh, the the sort of good thing about uh geolocation metadata and uh, particularly if you combine all these techniques together is that you cannot disprove that and and uh, it, it it really doesn't matter what the source is you know uh, it could be the Azov battalion or uh, the Russian uh, foreign ministry it doesn't really matter if you can geolocate and uh, uh, found like find the metadata for a certain video so I think like that's the most important thing and uh, secondly also understand that not everyone in a, such a massive organization like CNN understands these things and uh, it's important to communicate mm -hmm. and uh, and to be sort of kind and fair to people who are not familiar uh, with this type of reporting because it's you know for for a heritage me like CNN is uh, it's quite new and uh, and uh, ex sort of explain how it, this can contribute to make um, incredible reporting and it can also help people on the ground giving them important intel on where to go for example like uh, we had Matthew Chance go to Hostomel after 
we verified the Osmel airport uh, helicopter airport attack, and he just went there like the same day, just because we managed to geolocate and verify those videos. At, the, at first, they looked incredible; everyone was in denial. But it then was geolocated. We were lucky because we were we had like a great great bosses and great management that managed to sort of. Um, uh, uh, let us work uh, on on this front and approve this information for the whole of CNN and uh, to the world. Then, and mm-hmm. then we had a correspondent going there, and uh, we witnessed an amazing scene of Russian troops just just next to him. Uh, and uh, so, this is what you, you can achieve with this kind of uh, sort of rigorous uh, mm-hmm. reporting. Um, I think, from from my perspective. Dividing up the work and having really specific roles on a project helps. I think if you give people specific things that they need to focus on and you take away the noise, you don't make mistakes uh, or you you cut out the the chance of making mistakes. And if you've got a team of five or six being like, right, you focus on the geolocation of these things. You think about how we're going to sort out the video and make sure that the OSINT intelligence we're using is right. Um, And then the other thing I think is... The most important thing is is speak to experts. I think we touched on it earlier, and and we are experts in how to tell stories and in visual storytelling as a as a subject and how we might bring these things to life. But we'll be covering the Ukraine war one minute, and we might be covering something else completely different the next. So we, we're experts in the techniques, but not actually in the subject. And speaking to experts is vital. You need to speak to them all the time, and then speak to them again. And people are really really keen to help. And actually, the, these kind of Subjects come into view, and when they do, it's an opportunity for these people to kind of talk, and then that goes away again. And, then, and I think you've seen it with, with COVID, where you've kind of got experts within that field suddenly to the fore, and they're very happy to talk about it because they want the best and the most accurate information to get out there. And with the Ukraine war, whenever I've spoken to experts, they're like, I'm so glad you got in touch because people don't, and they publish stuff that's wrong, and it's infuriating, and they're very happy if you give them enough time and you ask the right questions to help you tell stories in the right way for readers. So speak to experts all the time. Don't You don't have to know everything. It's better if you don't, in fact. Uh, get in touch with people. If, you, if you're lucky enough to work for, for CNN or the FT, then, people, then it opens doors automatically. But if you get in touch with people, then you'd be surprised at how often they're willing to, to communicate with you about their, their subjects. Awesome. And just to go uh, one step further, uh, after giving some advice um, on the best practices, um, what advice could you give on in terms of the um, the tools that um, people in their newsrooms uh, who are trying to innovate could use to to step up their game, if you like? So, uh, rather than talking about like specific tools, I think like there are. I, I'm talking from a open source kind of perspective. I think there are so many uh, toolkits available mm-hmm. uh, that anyone can access. And I would recommend, obviously, the Bellingcat spreadsheet with all the sort of open source um, tools that they, they, it's, I think, up to date now. Like, they, they, it was uh, out of date a few years ago, but then they updated it, and it's uh, absolutely amazing. And first draft, as um, recently changed name, uh, they have uh, two different toolkits, one for basic sort of uh, beginner's guide to open source, and the other one is more advanced. And on YouTube, you can see um, the uh, Benjamin Strick's uh, guides to open source as well, uh, guide to geolocation and other um, amazing uh, techniques used. Um, in terms of, you know, what we what we use, like, 
uh, again as as open source. I, I was I was actually surprised at how useful uh, NASA firms uh, fire map is because it's, it's often a tool that is not very used by open source people and uh, looked uh, kind of snubbed or snubbed on. But mm-hmm. for Ukraine, it's um, incredibly useful, uh, and it and it gave us like kind of uh, up-to-date information on uh, on fires that were happening on specific uh, sites after a uh, rocket attack, for example. And they even can even give you information on uh, um, uh, on, on, on the time frame. So sometimes it's like less than six hours ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you can sort of cross-reference it with, uh, with videos you see um, on uh, that you try to sort of locate on social media. So that that's another tool that we found uh, incredibly useful that's a fantastic list um, and a great place to start uh mapbox has been really useful for us it's a brilliant tool for mm-hmm. kind of intuitive tool for mapping um and it works brilliantly across devices so it's it's actually very smooth and very powerful and we've told a lot of stories using mapbox as a base um it's also very customizable and then Figma is also something that we use a lot. Uh, it's a design tool, um, but it's great for collaborating. It's it ho- You can put a lot of stuff in there. You can kind of storyboard what you want to do, and that's also very intuitive. So when you're first thinking about uh, how you might want to tell a story, Figma's helpful. But also, I think the, the kind of key reporting techniques that you need for, for this sort of visual storytelling are not that dissimilar than the ones you need for great reporting. And I think that's one of the key things or the key messages that I would want to say is, the visuals can't carry the content. Like the content has to be good enough on its own. Um, and you have to do the reporting and you have to get the on the ground stuff and you have to be exposing things and revealing things that, that are that are world class, that, that go with the, the quality of the journalism that the, that you produce elsewhere. You can't be it, it can't be whizzy visuals that carry bad words. And I think that the, the key message there is to make sure you're thinking about that too. Like what is the story you're telling and are you speaking to the right people? Are you getting the content that you need? And I think the examples that Gianluca has shown are great ones of, of doing that as well as the, the visuals that they're revealing a story which needs to be told. So think about your reporting as well as your visualizing skills. Could you give tips on how to how to pitch those innovative projects to an editor? Um, how how easy is it to to get it commissioned? Uh, because some of them take some resources and uh, and time. And secondly, does the reusability of a project um, has a lot to play in this? Pitching them, you use the content you have. So, so if you're pitching a visual story, then use the visuals. Uh, I think make sure you, you're armed with the content that you want to show and, and you want to use for readers. And I think that really helps. Um, and it's a powerful way of, of making an argument for what you're trying to do. Um, and then be excited about what you're doing. Like, be excited about the story you're telling, and and make sure you're communicating why this is an important story that needs to be told, and why it lends itself to a visual story. Um, one of the things that we found difficult at the start of the war was coming up with an idea, idea, saying that we wanted to do it, and saying we needed about a week and a half, and then other people pitching those ideas because it's a big newsroom and we've got reporters all over the place, and we were covering big stories. So. I think there was quite a nice moment where, where the foreign editor said to me, oh, I, I think next time we'll just give you the space to do this when you come up with a story idea. And like you earned that right to do that. You can't just say that. And that's something that happens when you can show what you can do through this sort of storytelling. So that's that was a challenge for us, was carving out the space to 
to tell these stories. But I think use your visuals and make sure you're very excited about what you're pitching and, and why it needs to be told. As think visually uh, when you when you pitch a story uh, and like the maternity hospital, I think it was was a great example for us because we that's that's exactly the, the way we we conceived the story. Like we wanted like to show uh, like via uh, this 3D reconstruction that it was a civilian infrastructure that there were no um, soldiers around that uh, you know there were civilians that were cars parked and uh, that it was operating at the moment. And I think like we really conveyed that uh, with, with, with the 3D model and uh, uh, the, the videos, integrating with the videos that um, of, of the hospital after the attack. And uh, it's really, really testament to the great job that the, that the design team has done. So um, yeah, think visually and, uh, and um, try to sort of get the design team on board on your, on your project well thanks a lot it's been awesome uh, hearing your views it's been great having you thank you thanks for coming guys bye. bye a big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism you can subscribe to our podcast on soundcloud spotify google and apple podcasts you can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. The Conversations with Data podcast is an initiative by datajournalism.com, powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.